Well, welcome back everyone to the Whitetail Theories podcast. Today on the mic, we got special guest Vito Rodolico. What's going on, Vito? What's going on, Torn? How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So topic of discussion, we, uh, we discussed this on the phone here a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, about two weeks ago. And uh, we wanted to cover hunting ethics. And this is mainly going to be from a perspective of ourselves. And it's more so just to kind of give hunters food for thought, right? Yeah. Things to consider. So starting off, let's get the background stuff out of the way. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got into hunting, that whole deal. So I'm originally from New York City. I uh, moved to Jersey uh, or moved to Pennsylvania about seven years ago. Uh, initially got into hunting as a way for my brother-in-law and I to kind of build a relationship. And it kind of just started from there. Just the way my personality is, I have a very uh, addictive personality. If there's something I like or enjoy, I just dive headfirst into it. Uh, I currently reside in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Um, there with my wife and my two kids. And I would say I'm mainly just strictly an archery hunter. Uh, not really into the whole rifle thing, which we can get into a little bit with the ethics of it. But for the most part, that's uh, me in a nutshell. So what was, did you, did you start out hunting in New York? No, no, I started out here in Pennsylvania. And what was uh, kind of your introduction into hunting? Like when did you start hunting and kind of what was your thought process then? And then I want to kind of spin it forward to like how you think about it now. So initially, you know, growing up, I've always thought, you know, as whitetail, as just these dumb animals that run in front of cars and stop in front of headlights, you know, there wasn't really much of a large, larger thought process for me with that until I, until I actually got into the woods for the first time. And I just, I seen how they were like ninjas moving in the woods. Like, you know, you think you're just going to hear these loud crashes and stomping around and it's, it's not like that at all. And it just gave me a, a desire and a passion that I just wanted to learn more and just research more and just find out more. And that's kind of what led me to where I am today to the point of, uh, just seeing how gracious the animal moves through the woods it's not like most people's perception are they're just these dumb animals that get hit by cars mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what were some of the trials and tribulations you went through in the beginning being the fact that i wanted to start and strictly hunt archery uh, obviously it's becoming proficient with the bow uh, it's not just picking up the bow the week before archery season shooting it at a few targets slapping broadheads on and entering the woods it became something that Every single day, I was shooting 50, 60, 70 arrows, just trying to be proficient. I uh, got to a point where I was like, okay, I feel comfortable at 20 to 30 yards. Like, that's it. I'm not going to do anything outside past that. Learning how to access quiet, how to walk in quiet, like scent control, everything like that. It, it was such a huge learning curve that no matter how long you've been hunting, you're still learning today. Like, it's that's the great thing about just hunting in general, whether it's archery or anything whether you're hunting whitetail turkey you're always learning you're always trying new tactics and the learning curve never really flattens out yeah that's an interesting perspective because for me i feel like there's two sides of the boat there's people that this is the way i hunt i go to the same tree i hunt the same style every time first day of rifle i'm going to this, my spot and they're basically hoping and then you have the other side of the coin where you have the hunter that's always trying to improve in his 
his or hers tactics. Let's say that you get proficient in one area. Well, now you want to sharpen your skills in another area so that you have a whole bunch of tools on, on your tool belt rather than just being pigeonholed into one style of hunting. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you you talk to the guys that their grandfather has been hunting the same spot for mm -hmm. 30 years. And it's like, okay, it's opening day of rifle season or it's opening day of archery season. This is my spot. This is my tree. This is where I hunt. And they'll sit there all day, all week, all season and not see a single deer and not even think to the point, okay, well, I got to get up and I have to move. It's just what they know. It's how they were raised. And that's, that's what they're okay with. And then you have guys that strictly only hunt the ground that are constantly moving, following that spot and stalk. Like, it, I guess a lot of that comes to be what excites you really. Yeah. You know, if your desire to hunt is being fulfilled by sitting in the same tree that your grandfather sat in or that your dad sat in and you're successful or you're enjoying it, there's nothing wrong with it, but everybody has a different method of hunting. And you're starting to see, in my opinion, you're starting to see a bigger transition into that mobile, like, you know, hang and bang style hunting, like, social media is influencing that like younger generations. I mean, guys are no longer walking a hundred yards away from their truck. You have guys going miles back, mm -hmm. you know, and everyone's changing, whether it's beast tactics or, you know, it's hunting public land. It's, it's what they're seeing fit for them. And then the guys that hunt 50 yards away from their truck and still harvest the deer, it's what works for them. It's the, that's their style of hunting and no style is wrong. Right. Right. You know, exactly. No style is wrong. If it's what makes you happy and if, Honestly, if it gets you in the woods, great. Like, because that's the problem is people don't want to put in the work. So they think hunting is boring. It's this, it's that because they don't want to spend the time or because they sat in that uh, same tree stand for, you know, the whole season and didn't see anything. And now hunting's not fun to them. So they, they give up. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point there. And I want to kind of, I want to go back here a little bit before we kind of start diving down the rabbit hole. So when you first started getting into archery, was it a situation where you were like, all right, I want to go archery hunting. You went and got a bow and then you practiced with that bow and then went out your first season or did you, or had you shot a bow before and like you knew relatively how to shoot the mechanics, that kind of stuff. Didn't know the mechanics, didn't know anything. Um, pretty much started as a hundred percent fresh sitting in my backyard. Uh, I was too cheap to go out and buy a target because mm -hmm. I was like, am I really going to like this? So I went and got some hay bales and I set some hay bales up in my backyard and I sat there and just shot at it and shot at it and shot at it. And then I seen that archery is not just uh, hunting. It's, it's a sport. I shoot all year round, whether it's indoor 450 style, indoor 3d, like target archery. Any, I shoot all year round. It's, I would say I'm more of an archerist than I am a hunter. I enjoy archery. I, Think it ties in together for the simple fact of archery hunting but i consider myself an archivist so when you first got into it did you hunt that that first season i hunted that first season my brother-in-law said hey i have a ladder stand over here on a, a small farm that we have permission to hunt um it's there's deer all over the place all the time and i kid you not i sat in this stand he told me to sit in the stand you know wait for first light anything happens blah blah and 20 minutes in, a yearling walks out in front of me. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's a deer right there. I didn't know <laughs> what to do. Um, didn't stand up out of this ladder stand. I sat there on my butt, never practiced sitting down and shooting. Like that's, if you shot sitting down, it's completely different. Your mechanics right. are off, everything's off. And I let an arrow fly and like, 
I remember shaking. I remember like that, that feeling, like that rush, that, that fever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that was the coolest thing ever. And I'm sitting there and like, I didn't know what to do. I never tracked an animal, don't know anything. Called up my brother-in-law, him and a buddy of ours came and we started tracking it. Unfortunately, I probably sailed right over this thing's back. You know, <laughs> like, it would be awesome for the story to say, yeah, you know, first deer, first time out there, first hour of harvest. But no, that wasn't the case. Um, but there was that thrill. And like, I remember from that point on, like every single day I could after work, I went and hunted. I went and bought a tree stand. I bought sticks. Like I just, I, I poured into the investment because of that feeling more or less. And uh, I was fortunate enough my first year ever hunting, I did get to harvest a doe. Uh, shot her out of a tree stand about 25 yards away, double long, ran 30 yards, uh, tracked her myself, found her. I did have a buddy of mine, Phil, help me gut her because I've never done that before. That was a new learning experience. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I guess I was fortunate enough to be able to harvest my first year. And that's what kept that drive going and going. And after that, I never put the bow down. It's always been in my hand. I've always been shooting. Like, yeah. So from that first experience to where you are now, how did you kind of shape yourself into the hunter you are now? Like, how did you build the perceptions you have? How did you build the personality of the quote unquote hunter or hunting style that you have? So I think a lot of that just comes into personal morals um, in general. Uh, I'm a devoted Christian, so I have a biblical outlook on a lot of things. And like, if you look into scripture, you know, it talks about in Genesis, you know, go get your bow and quiver and hunt for your food. Like there's that like primitive aspect of it. So like that was something that was intriguing and kind of kept that drive and desire alive. And then as far as like learning and wanting to find like a specific tactic, I wouldn't say I have a specific style of hunting. Like I'll hunt from the ground. I'll hunt from a saddle. I'll hunt from a blind. Like I'll hunt big woods. I'll hunt farm edges. Like there's not a specific style of hunting that I would gravitate towards. Well, I guess saddle hunting, I would gravitate towards in that aspect. But as far as the environment, like I'll hunt anything Mm -hmm. for the simple fact is there's always information. There's always something to learn different tracks of woods or whether you're hunting big mountains or you're hunting swamp bottoms or you're hunting creek bottoms. There's so much to learn in all those diverse habitats that it's never satisfying for me to only have one style. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, no, like you, you want to be able to taste all the different flavors because each situation offers something different, something unique. There's a different excitement in it. Like hunting from the ground is probably one of the most exhilarating things ever. You know, like literally like if you you ever hunt from the ground and you've ever had uh, any animal within 10, 15 yards from you, like you're, you're, you can almost feel like your heart's slow. Like you can feel like everything's tunnel vision, slow motion, like. That feeling is awesome. It's exhilarating. Same thing, like when you're up in a tree, you're 20 feet up and that animal has no idea that you're there. Like there's just something so exhilarating about that. And it's it's awesome. And then I could also see how people who get stuck in the same way of hunting, same tree, same everything, could lose that excitement. Because it's just, oh, I just shot another deer. It is what it is. Mm. Yeah, it's, for me, changing things up makes it fun again. So what things in hunting do you find that you kind of steer clear of that don't necessarily align with your ideologies? Rifle hunting is a big thing that I kind of struggle with. Um, Just for the simple fact, you know, 100, 200 yard shot isn't really a challenge. Um, I shoot... I, I shoot rifle, I shoot shotgun like pretty proficiently. Mm. For me to shoot something at 200 yards, I don't find that exciting. 
Right? Mm. You know, I could literally be standing in a pair of blue jeans at uh, on a field edge and a deer could be 200 yards away and I pull the trigger and yeah, I, I just shot a big deer. Whether it's a big buck, a doe, it doesn't matter. It's There's no excitement in that for me. Um, there's just something about the up close and personal aspect of archery hunting that is just exhilarating to me. Uh, muzzle loader, I muzzle loader, flintlock, like I have an appreciation for that because it's not that 100, 200 yard shot. You know, you're typically within 100 yards with a muzzle loader and they're not the most accurate guns out there. Like it, there is a little bit of a challenge to it, but if I had a choice at any day of the week, it would it would be a bow. So you're really, you were obviously based on this conversation, your tie to hunting is really the intimacy of it. Yeah. And once you start straying away from that, uh, it's maybe not necessarily up your alley. So let's kind of go down this rabbit hole a little bit. I know that fair chase gets brought up a lot and you were just talking about the rifle and oh, I mean, you're talking at 100, 200, 300 yards. Well, now rifles are being built in a way that you can shoot. If you're a good shooter, you can shoot a mile. Yeah. And like, to me, I'm kind of in the same boat as you as well, because yes, that does take a lot of skill to be able to shoot that that far. But in my opinion, that animal doesn't really have any opportunity of escape. No chance at all. Like, it's funny that you say precision rifles uh actually a buddy and my a buddy and myself are in the process of building precision rifles our goal is to shoot a thousand yards mm -hmm. um if you look in the precision shooting you're shooting a 15 inch wide target you know you're not shooting a three foot wide deer you know like there's skill that's behind precision shooting is designed in a specific way to make it a challenge when you're hunting in that aspect uh five, six, 700 yard shot. Like you could make a bad shot. It's what would be a bad shot in the precision world, but it'd still be a lethal kill. I don't think that's fair chase. And that's strictly opinionated because that deer has no chance at all. It could be literally standing in the woods, make, looking to make sure nothing is there that's going to kill it. And suddenly it's dead. Mm. Like there's no opportunity for that deer to survive. If you're there with your scope on it, there's no opportunity for it. It doesn't matter about wind direction, nothing at that point. So obviously the, this has a lot to do with technology, right? Yeah. So with the way that things are going now, how do you see potentially the future? Because in my opinion, you see more and more hunters pressing the easy button or wanting things easier, right? Without a doubt. You want to shoot your buck on the first day of archery or rifle season, whatever it is. Uh, some people... They're, they don't go in as far because they don't want to worry about having to drag a deer out maybe a mile or something like that. That, that kind of stuff. Uh, with that being said, I would say that the future potentially looks a little bleak. It with does without a doubt. Yeah. And you look at, like you were saying, technology coming in. Look like Garmin has that XT1 site for a compound that automatically mm -hmm. ranges and everything for you. I mean, in many states, that's illegal because that takes the sport out of it. Like... It's a cheat code more or less. And I feel like the younger generations are wanting that easy way out. They want that instant satisfaction, that instant gratification. Like they, they don't want to work for anything. They just want it handed to them. And that's more or less what I, how I feel technology is guiding that same thing. Like crossbows, I don't find crossbows 
a necessity unless you're a handicap hunter or you've had shoulder surgery. If you are physically able to draw a compound bow, you should be shooting a compound bow, not a crossbow. That's my opinion. Um, you look at some of the legal minimum weights for a compound bow, my wife could pull it. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it, there's no excuse for a fit 20 something year old to shoot a compound bow mm -hmm. or to shoot a, a crossbow. I don't see that. And like, I think there's some ethics behind that. Like you're taking the challenge away from it. you got crossbows that will shoot 80, a hundred yards. Like that's, where's the skill in that? Well, so let me, let me be the devil's advocate here. You mentioned that like the, the generation below us potentially, uh, is, is hitting that easy button, wants it a little bit easier. Would you say the generation above us is saying the same thing about us? Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Because, I mean, how many times do you meet old timers where <laughs> exactly. they're like, oh, you don't know how easy you have it. Back in our day, we had to build our stands out of two-by-fours. Like, So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think every generation is going to blame it on the future generation. Oh, you guys have it so easy. It's not like it was for us. Like, there's always going to be that. And, I mean... And I, I personally think that a lot of that is because of technology. So yeah. like the generation above us, they didn't have the technology we have now. And then again, step down, the generation below us, we didn't really have that technology when we were growing up. Look at, I mean, just look at the advantages that we have now between mapping software, yeah. you know, like Onyx, base map, anything like that. I mean, you can literally sit there and choose, oh, do I want satellite? Do I want topo? And you can get e-scouting now. That was not a thing 10 years ago. Right. You know, like there was guys looking at maps and topo maps and going to libraries to be able to find out that information. And realistically, they probably weren't doing that or there weren't many guys that were going at it to that extent. And that's I feel where the this is my tree. This is where I hunt. That's where it came from you mm -hmm. know, because it was very difficult to put the work in. So the technology can be a benefit, but a curse at the same point in time. It, it really can. That's a really good, interesting point. I never really thought of that with uh, not necessarily having the technology to scout different locations and, and falling into that trap of hunting the same location over and over. But what I do want to ask you is, all right, so where's the happy medium? Because let's say, like, what does it look like 20 years from now? Are, are we eventually, as, as a hunting community, going to say, all right, we need to put a hold on technology and this is accepted, this is not accepted? And I think a lot of that is going to be how your state's game commission looks at things because there has to be a part of it where that the odds have to be in both parties' favor. Mm -hmm. You know, if the technology is getting to be too advanced and too crazy where it's more like a slaughter for the game animals, like there's got to be an equilibrium between that. There has to be a balance point because if everything is so easy, you're going to lose hunter retention. Mm -hmm. I mean, guys aren't going to want to hunt because it's so easy. Like it loses the thrill. It loses the fun. And it's strictly my opinion. You know, if I knew every day I walked into the woods and I could harvest every single day, like would hunting really be fun? Right. You know, would it really be a challenge? You know, and I look forward to archery season. I look forward to hunting season. Like I look forward to the off season to put the work in, to scout, to go for hikes and stuff like that. But if it was... Technology was like, oh, okay, you know, here's trackers on animals. We have drones flying around that we could pick them out. Like, who knows what it could be in 20 years? It really be fun. You know, I think there's, there's a balance point between that. And you see a lot of states that, you know, don't allow ozonics or don't allow crossbows to be used or 
crossbows can only be used during rifle season. I think all of that has its place to even the playing field, to make it fair. Well, so here, I, it's funny that you brought that up because so on the last podcast that I did uh, the other day, Joe and I were talking about a subject similar to this. And if you do it the way that you said, where you're using science to basically watch the success rates and the animal populations, you should be good. Mm -hmm. But so much of the industry and hunting in general is driven by the almighty dollar, just like the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. Where that science and the North American model of wildlife conservation takes a backseat. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, I think I, I think I just read this the other day. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I'm pretty sure I read this the other day, that crossbows are now the majority of archery equipment used in this state. So let's say that you wanted to take out and remove crossbows and have their own season. Well, now you're potentially removing over 50% of your archery license sales. Yep. And like you said, it all comes down to the almighty dollar. You know, the game commission needs to be funded. They're funded through their tag sales. If you're saying, hey, no more crossbows and the majority is hunting with crossbows or you're limiting a season to cross, then yes, hunter retention is going to go down the window. I mean, there really isn't a happy medium because one way or another, somebody's going to be pissed off. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to get picked off no matter what. It's it just comes down to an opinion in that aspect. You know, the majority would have to rule and say, hey, you know, you can use crossbows during, our, during rifle season. That's not considered an archery equipment, you know, but the guidelines state, you know, if it shoots an arrow or a bolt, that's considered archery. It's not a bullet. Or right. if it shoots under a certain feet per second. Like, there's restrictions, but they're very loose because the almighty dollar controls, you know, it's still a business. I would be, I would be interesting, or I would be interested to see if like when this stuff goes into legislation or is put into place for whatever state's management agency is controlling it, if they have the foresight to look at it 15 years down the road, probably not, I would say, because I mean, yeah, you could say that like crossbows were going to blow up, like you, but you didn't think that they were going to blow up to the extent that they no. outweigh the amount of vertical bows in the woods nowadays. And I think, I really do think, especially for Pennsylvania Game Commission, I think they do have their eyes on the bigger picture. Uh, you can look at the elk population. If you look and see what Pennsylvania says the elk population is, like you can, if you've ever watched the elk cams, you know they're lying. Like <laughs> you know they're lying. Right. You know they're limiting the amount of issue because they want to make Pennsylvania a destination for elk. You know they they want to they want to have the ability to sell more elk tags in the future. So I think with the whitetail, especially like the antler restrictions and stuff like that, I think they're trying to make it more of a destination and limit on how much can actually be done, no matter what weapon you're using. Like they limited this year, they dropped the amount of tags that were allowed to be sold for doe tags. You're only allowed to have so many in your possession at a time. Like I think rather than them limiting the weapon that you're able to use, they're limiting the actual harvest that can be done. Mm -hmm. So it, the future can still be possible to have hunters in the woods and to have a decent deer population, good herd dynamics and stuff like that. So to sit there and say like, Hey, you know, we're going to ban crossbows. I don't real realistically see that happening. Mm, yeah, it's just either. an issue that I just see. And I'm because I have a few guys that I know that clearly fit enough to pull a compound bow back, but they choose to hunt with a crossbow because it's easier for them. And there's also a little bit to that, that I can agree with because 
if you're more comfortable looking through that scope and taking a shot that is going to be a fail shot, great. If you're not going to put the work in to learn to proficiently shoot a compound bow and you're going to be wounding animals, then I'm not okay with that either. Like it, right. it's such a, it's such a struggle point because then what, then you have guys that are just picking up compound bows. They shoot it a week before archery season. And now, you know, you got stomach shots or their arrows flying all over the place or, you know, deer that are getting wounded and surviving. Like that's not ethical for the animal. That's not fair. Like you're, you're torturing the animal more or less. Like, so you, know, you bring up a good point and that's kind of what I was going to transition to here is kind of the cultural aspect of hunting ethics. So you kind of touched on it right there. What about the hunter that has, let's just say the nine to five and then they come home to the family. They maybe don't have enough time to become proficient with traditional archery tackle uh, and taking out a crossbow on a Saturday, however many Saturdays you get six is their only way to get out in archery season. Like where, how do you juggle that? You know what I mean? It's, it is, it's tough. I mean, I definitely, I definitely feel for that person. Um, I work myself like a dog so I can have the month of October off. Mm -hmm. Uh, I work 60, 70 hour weeks. You know, I find time wait like to spend shooting my bow. You know, like I have my wife, I have my kids, like I have my church functions and stuff like that, but I still make the time, um, whether I'm taking it away from sitting down watching TV for right. 20 minutes, I'm going outside and shooting my bow instead. Right. You know, I feel like if it's something that is a person is passionate about or really has a desire to do, they'll make time for it. Just like you can make time for everything else. And there's, there's occasions where, you know, it may slip away from myself, but I still always try to make sure I stay proficient with that. And the guys that are just like, well, I work too much. I get home, I'm tired, or I get home and it's dark out. I feel for them. I do, but there's plenty of indoor archery places that are open till nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night that you can go and shoot. Like you could put the, you could put the effort in mm-hmm. without a doubt. Yeah. I, I agree with you there because it's, it's a matter of prioritizing your time. I mean, let's face it too, honestly, if, if you take, I don't know, let's just say five hours a week or three hours a week out of your week, you can become very proficient with the bow with how efficient they are and how good the equipment is. Yeah. So I want to kind of transition here a little bit and I want to talk about cultural lifestyles of hunting. And what I mean by that is various parts of the country. So Pennsylvania has a very unique tradition of driving deer in rifle season, flintlock season, so on and so forth, where you can go to another location and that's frowned upon. Yeah. And for example, if you go to a location that allows baiting, uh, other states don't allow baiting. And then you kind of have this back and forth. Let's talk about that a little bit and how it can be very, very okay for you but yet I feel like that's wrong. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with how you look at hunting, what you look at as hunting as, cause there's states that allow you to run dogs, mm-hmm. you know, and do deer drives and bait and they're successful. They enjoy it. That's the way that they grew up hunting. Mm-hmm. So if you grow up doing something and knowing that that's the way to do it, just because somebody else does it a different way, doesn't make your way wrong. 
we may have a different opinion on it. Like I personally think, Hey, if I'm in a state where I could dump a 50 pound bag of corn and sit over that corn pile, like I think that's wrong. If I grew up doing it, if that was how I was taught how to hunt personally, I think I would, I would still have a problem. Um, obviously I can't really speak for that. Well, I guess I can, cause I'll be going to Jersey next week to hunt. You could bait in Jersey. Mm-hmm. I'm not lugging a 50 pound bag of corn in the woods with me. Like I'm not going to be hunting over a bait pile. Uh, I'm still going to go for the whole public land, hang and bang style hunting. Like even if I walk across a bait pile, I'm not going to hunt over a bait pile. I think that takes the the fair chase out of it. I think that takes the challenge out of it. Um, you know, at one point in time, a deer is going to come to that corn pot, you know, especially if it's there, they may come at night, they may come first thing in the morning. They're going to come to that. To me, it's wrong because I wasn't brought up to hunt that way. Well, know? let me ask you this, because we keep using the term fair chase. And I think, it's important for the audience to understand what you would say your definition of fair chase is. My definition of fair chase would be unmanaged property that is, let's just say public land that you are entering the woods with information from e-scouting, looking at maps, stuff like that. But you don't know what that area is holding as far as the size of a deer, if it's holding a huge population or what. And, following sign, finding areas to set up, looking for good deer habitat as far as, okay, this is good food. This is good bedding. You know, I see good pinch points, transition areas, like using your woodsmanship to find an area to be successful in harvesting a deer. The hunting managed properties with managed food plots that know the, the herd dynamic that have literally been growing deer for five, 10, 15, five, 10 years or whatever. 10 years is a little bit crazy. You shoot a 10 year old. That's awesome. But, mm-hmm. uh, I think that takes the fair chase out of it. Cause you know, that that deer's there, you know, what caliber animal is there. You know, you're actually there to hunt that specific animal at that point. I don't find that fair chase. Mm-hmm. So why do you consider the use of aerial maps? Okay. But you don't consider the use of trail cameras. Okay. So trail cameras are fine. Cause I mean, I'll run trail cameras like on the off season, even during the entire season, I, I run trail cameras. I run cell cameras, to be honest, <laughs> my son likes to look at deer photos. That's the reason why I do it. Um, I think you and I had actually spoken about it a couple of weeks ago. Like that information is pointless to me. Once season starts like, great. I may have had a really nice, really nice buck on camera. And guess what? First week of season, he's pushed all over the place. Like yeah. that does not mean he's going to be there ever again. Like, Sure, I had a photo of them, but I'm not, what am I going to chase that photo? You know, like the reality of it, I'm, I don't rely strictly on myself, on my camera data. I, I don't, because this, if you ever hunt in any pressured area, it changes every single day. Like it's luck. It really is. There's a lot of skill into it, but if you're literally trying to hunt based off that information you have on your phone or on your cameras, you're getting lucky because they're coming back. Mm. You know, realistically, their patterns change. First week of archery or first week of any type of hunting season. Yeah. Bed to food, bed to food. Great. Once they get pressured, they go nocturnal. Yeah. You know, all that data that you had kind of goes out the window. You bring the rut into play. They're running around all over the place. You may have a buck on camera five miles away that is now showing up in an in area that's never been at before. Never had a photo of them. Like the, there's no way to actually sit there and say, oh, this deer is going to be here. He's going to be here. like. I know guys can say that they do it and, and sure it happens to them, but there's, 
it's unrealistic in my opinion. No, I think you're, I, I definitely think you're right. And I would say that that's the case for 95% of the situations just because of the pressure, at least in, in the state of Pennsylvania yeah. and a lot of the mid-Atlantic states, uh, people forget about the seasonal migration. So you might be getting pictures all summer of a deer and then October comes, that deer's gone. Uh, you have tens of thousands of people coming into the woods on a, one day, like on that first day, right? That's definitely going to jack up any natural movement yeah. that is going on. The, the scent dispersion of hunters, all even, that. Even just look at, look at how uh, a white-tailed buck essentially grows during the summer. They're in bedding areas that are safe for them to not damage their velvet. If they mm -hmm. damage their velvet, you get irregular growth. They're not in these huge, large thickets. You know, they may be bedding in a CRP field or they may be bedding on these fence rows or cornfields, like areas that they're safe. Don't get me wrong. It's not that they're hundred percent clearly visible, but they don't have to worry about damaging velvet. They don't have to worry about hurting themselves or anything like that. As soon as they start shedding, now they go to their primary bedding areas, right. you know, that are a little bit more thicker. You know, they, they have the wind to their advantage a lot more. They have a vantage point, like they're, they change their habitat for their safety, you know? So, as soon as those people are starting to walk into the woods and leaving scent behind or just pressuring or bumping them or moving them, they know they're being hunted. They're not stupid. Like right. a mature deer does, a mature buck does not get to be a mature buck by being dumb. You know, and that's something that I learned over the, over the years that they are very intelligent animals. Just like we're hunting them, they're essentially evading us. You know, they know how we access. Like the buck I shot last year literally was bedded 20 yards from my access. And I probably walked by him multiple times and never knew he was there. And sitting there thinking after, after I harvested, I'm like, he watched me come in every single day. Like, cause where he was, I would never think that he would be betting there. Plain and simple. If I was evading somebody trying to kill me, that would have been a great spot. I had great cover. I could see clearly, there was, uh, I could see clearly on where anybody's coming across this Creek and everything like, it was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, wow, that was probably like the smartest thing this guy could have ever done. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and just as we're hunting them, they're evading us. They're getting bumped around. They're getting moved around. You hear all this stuff on social media or these YouTube hunters where it's, oh, well, this is primary bedding or this, we got a buck bedding behind us. You're guessing. You don't physically know that there are buck bedding back there. You're saying this is the type of habitat that supports bucks. Like, right. And it's getting, I really think that stuff gets misinterpreted. Like you sit there and watch the hunting public, very successful hunters. I enjoy watching their videos, but everything, like all their video interviews, you know, we have pinch point here. We have buck bedding behind us. You know, we're going to wait and see if something comes out. You had no idea if a buck was actually bedded there. That's the habitat that supported it. You know, if you maybe got eyes on them, you glanced it and seen it. Okay. But if you're walking into an area free range, like for the first time, you're seeing habitat that supports bedding, not is definitely bedding. Yeah, and I, I want to clear this up. So just in case people might be getting a little confused here. So Vito, what you're talking about is hunters, like let's say the hunting public or even myself, when they're suggesting that there's buck bedding, they're taking an educated guess, hunting it based on their woodsmanship and nothing is a hundred percent sure is ultimately what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause okay. you look at a, a, like a lot of people that watch those types of 
content, if they're learning for the first time, all of a sudden they think that like, that's, oh wow, like this is what these guys are doing. Like, that's what I got to look for when I'm in the woods here. You know, like it's, it's taken as gospel because they're seeing people be successful from it. They don't have any experience at it being successful for them. And it could be misinterpreted or it could even be expressed in more of a, it, like they could be expressing that this is buck betting. Like, and right away, somebody watching it that may not have the woodsmanship is suddenly looking for that now. And now they're not finding it and now they're, they're disheartened and they're like, well, this sucks. Why am I unsuccessful? I suck at doing this. Why am I going to continue doing it? Like there's so much stuff in that aspect that could really shy people away when it comes to hunting. And it's because you're not, hunters aren't taking the time to learn and they're not taking the time to just see what works for them and see what information they can gather themselves. I know that went completely off topic, dude. I'm like a, I'm really bad ADD. So I'm like, you know, sitting there talking to somebody and a squirrel runs by, I, my attention span is horrible. No, no, no. That's actually really good because I, I've had issues trying to help people figure out how to find habitat that is buck bedding. And I was, I've been unable in some circumstances to connect the dots for them. And I think what you just described right there is the missing link of like some of my teachings yeah when so, they're when they literally can't picture what buck biting looks like when you're how you supposed to find it when you're explaining buck biting to somebody you thick nasty habitat with a good exit route wind constantly over their back good visual right that's pretty much buck biting in a nutshell right a mm -hmm. little bit higher of an elevation compared to where you're at you know like that is the type of habitat that supports buck biting Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean they're not going to bed on a corn, uh, on the edge of a cornfield. Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't mean they're not going to bed somewhere completely different. Like that's just the type of habitat that supports it. That is commonly seen as buck bedding. You're putting blinders on yourself if you're thinking a buck is only going to bed in habitat like that, or deer are only going to move through certain pinch points or transition areas. Like you're putting blinders on, and it's. It's very difficult to overlook the information that guys are learning or seeing because who they're watching is successful. You don't know how much other information they have. You're seeing a 10 minute video clip. That guy could have spent five weeks in that parcel of land to learn that little bit of information. You know, it, a lot of it comes down to your woodsmanship and understanding of what kind of habitat supports, what kind of habitat doesn't, what should I be looking for, what should I not be looking for, and knowing that there's there's freaks out there. Well, let me ask you this. So this just came to my mind, and I think a lot of people miss this, and I, I, I harp on it hard, is understanding where your skill set is, all right? So you look at these, these YouTubers and whatever skill sets they've built as far as their wishmanship goes, understanding that you may necessarily don't have you you don't have the same skills as them so for example right i enjoy playing golf and i wouldn't ever consider myself to be tiger woods so why would i compare my situ situation to tiger woods you know what i mean and i think a lot of people do basically that same analogy all right so here's dan infault here's the hunting public here's whoever and they hunt this way it works really well for them well why is it not working well for me you don't have yeah. the skill sets built. I mean, the greatest, the greatest example of that is it's the biggest thing in on any forum or social media right now. You find a mylar balloon in the woods, you found a buck bed. <laughs> like, I mean, dude, I found mylar balloons on the side of roads. Does that mean a buck's gonna bed there? Right. Like, 
you know, that's just happened to be what Dan Infault has seen and it, it worked for him. I mean, that's, you, that's not woodsmanship. Like no. now you got guys, like pretty soon you're going to see guys carrying mylar balloons and dropping them to bring people off the scent or keep people away from their deer because, Oh, everyone's looking for mylar balloons now. Let's just start randomly dropping them. Like, you know, it, all of those guys have that information because they have spent the time in the woods. They've, they've done the labor, they've done the man hours, learning that piece of property. They're not just walking in and being successful or they're when they are walking in these new areas that they've never hunted before, they're taking years of experience of what they've seen and they're using it to fun, to be successful in those areas. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Great point. Yep. Great point. All right. Let's wheel this baby back in. Okay. We got a little sidetrack there. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about that we brought up before the podcast was the, uh, the dictations, I guess, and I don't know if that's correct terminology, but of what Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young consider ethical hunting. Yeah. So I had a fact check, of course, using Google. Boone and Crockett will not allow you to enter uh, an animal for scoring if cell cameras have been used. Mm -hmm. You know, so right there, I mean, it's not considered fair chase in Boone and Crockett's eyes. Uh, I would agree with that. You know, like I'm not going to sit here and try to have an animal scored for that because of the reasoning. I had history with that. That's not really fair. You could set 30 cameras up in a little square area. And if you're constantly pattering him that way, that's not fair. You have the information on him. That's not a fair chase. Yeah. I'm not saying that's equivalent to a high fence, you know, but Boone and Crockett will not allow you to enter an animal in for scoring if cell cams are used. I agree with that. I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, ooh. It's a tough one. It is. Especially, it is. I mean, everyone nowadays has cell cameras because let's be realistic. I have some cameras that are three miles out in the woods and guess what? I don't want to walk three miles to pull the cards every week. Like sure. It, the convenience, it, there's the laziness is, Hey man, it's right here. I want you to see what I got. Great. You know, I went out the other day because my camera hasn't been sending photos. I hiked three miles out there, you know, to pull the camera. And I was like, this is miserable. Yeah. You know, like it really is. But 10 years ago, that's what you had to do. Right. Right. Look how small cell cameras are now. I've seen some like photos of like ancient cell cameras or ancient trail cameras that had like D batteries. I didn't even know they still made D batteries. First off, <laughs> you know, like, there were there were cameras that used D batteries and they were huge. Yeah. Know? But that was what was innovative back then. You know, and now you see cell cameras; they're everywhere. Walmart sells them. You know, and they're used all over the place and they're used all the time. But Boone and Crockett has a strong foundation built on fair chase. They have restrictions and guidelines that try to make, I, I personally think, set a standard for what's considered a fair chase harvest. And they tell you, no, no trail cameras or no uh, cellular cameras. Right. So I think there's, I think there's a happy medium. Um, in my opinion, I think the Boone and Crockett Club and Pope and Young Club can sometimes get a little bit behind in their, their thinking as far as catching up with the times, like I know Pope and Young, they didn't allow entries for um, lighted knocks. Yeah. And then, to me, that's that's insane. But you look at the tradition behind it. Sure. You know, Boone and Crockett especially is fairly prestigious. You know, mm -hmm. like if, if you can shoot a, a Boone and Crockett buck, be entered in that, you're in that for life. Like that's mm -hmm. fairly prestigious, you know? So they have a guidelines of tradition that are set from there you know same thing like if a guy comes up to me and is like hey you know i shot a 140 inch you know last saturday with the compound 
oh, man, that's great. You know, like, you're, hey, I shot a 140 with, or I shot a 110 inch buck with a trad bow. Yeah. Damn, dude, that's sick. Like, you know, just because it was yeah. a trad bow. Yeah. You know, like, dude, it's awesome because um, there was a guy on the service side app just harvested his first buck with the recurve. And I, it was probably like that 100 inch. Yeah. And, Dude, like I was ecstatic for him. Oh yeah, because like I know what he went through to go through that. If you've ever shot a trad bow, yeah, I mean, I I started playing with a trad bow, and I mean, dude, at first I can show you the holes in my shit, mm-hmm. like just not like yeah, it it's so difficult, you know, and like you want to talk about being proficient and and learning, I mean, that is to proficiently be able to shoot a trad bow is phenomenal. Like I listened to the Push podcast and like the way that those guys talk about trad and like how those guys shoot, like watch their score. And it's like amazing. Like there's guys that can't do it with a compound bow and they're doing right. it with a trad bow. Like there's so much more respect for the tradition. Like that's where archery came from. You right. Know? Like that, that traditional aspect. And then you go to the guys that are sharpening stones and making long bows and like are harvesting. I don't care if it's a yearling doe. Like the fact that you did it with a bow, you built and a broadhead, you sharpened out of a piece of slate. Like I think that's cooler than shooting 178 as well. Mm. I really do. Like, you know, I think too many people are getting wrapped up on size nowadays rather than the experience. Experience. Absolutely. For me, I mean, it, for me, it's the experience. Like I shot a four-year-old last year, uh, 130 class. Great. You know, I didn't care the size of them. Was it, I ate the meat. The meat tasted great to me. It was the story that I had that went along with it that I'll never forget that story, but I'll may forget the size of the antlers. Right. Like, you know, it's mounted up on my wall. My wife absolutely hates it. But at the same point in time, like the story is what made it worth it for me. I could have cared less if it was a hundred inch buck. The story is what mattered to me. The, tra- the tradition behind the hunt, not just the fact that I shot this giant buck or I shot a, a decent buck or anything. Too much stuff is getting caught up in the size of what you're shooting. And I think that's going to play into why we're losing hunters. All right. Well, before we get there, I want to, I want to kind of circle back here. So where do you think is the happy medium? You were talking about how Boone and Crockett is very prestigious and like, I understand that aspect of things, but there's also the the aspect of staying current with what's happening as far as, um, technology, the times we're in. So for example, if like a, a club like Boone and Crockett, very prestigious, very well known, uh, club, do you think that they're potentially having any negative, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Do you think they're doing any negativity towards hunting by maybe having some of these little outlandish tendencies to their, uh, Personally, records? I don't. Personally, I think the fact that they have those guidelines brings hunting back to a foundational aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, because we said earlier about like the cheat code, more or less. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things becoming so easy that for you to be able to be part of this prestigious Boone and Crockett Club, like these are the guidelines that you have to reach, and it sets a goal. Not saying that you can't go out and enjoy hunting with your lighted knocks or your Garmin range finding site and stuff like that. But if you want to be part of Boone and Crockett, I don't, these are the guidelines that you have to follow. And it's like a new challenge. I think for those hunters that really enjoy the challenge of hunting, 
those guidelines, that strict tradition is what brings them to want to become or get into that Boone and Crockett club is the fact that they have those guidelines. They have to do it a certain way. That's, that's a really good perspective. I've never looked at it that way because I've always looked at it as, all right, we're a bunch of old fogies and this is the only way that you can be a part of our club. You know what I mean? Yeah, I could see that. You know, look, look, look at it in other aspects of sports, though. You know what I mean? Can't do steroids. Yep. I mean, you could easily do steroids and become, you know, the best UFC fighter or, you know, whatever, whatever sport you want to play. You know, mm -hmm. you could there's these advantages that you could do. But, hey, if you really want to be the best of the best, like you do it off raw talent. Like right. here's the guidelines, here's the restrictions and get it done. You know, so I think you're look, like if you look at it in that aspect as hunting as a sport in that way, these guidelines are like rules that the MLB has or that the UFC has or I can get any, down with any, that. Yeah, any professional sport has like for the simple fact, these are the guidelines that have to be met if you want to be a part of this, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that drives a lot of people. I really do. Like, I think the fact of saying that, hey, I shot a Pope and Young or I shot a Boone and a Boone and Crockett, I think that actually drives a lot of people. I would agree. You know, like just to be able to say, hey, I did this, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and knowing that, like, if you met a guy that's in Boone and Crockett, like knowing the stipulations he had to follow to actually be accepted in Boone and Crockett, there's a lot more respect in that than it is for a guy that, you know, may have shot a 170 class with all the fancy gizmos and gadgets. Like, yeah, great. No, that's a, an awesome, huge deer, but you shoot it following these restrictions and these guidelines, like there's a little bit more to it. Like there's a little bit more work that had to get put in. And I personally think that's awesome. Yeah, I would agree with you. Now that I'm looking at it in that light and like I was definitely a person that was like, yeah, I don't really care about the Boone and Crockett Club or the Pope and Young Club, but looking at it the way that you described it makes it much more appealing to me. Yeah. Much more appealing. Yeah, breaking it down into, breaking it down into simplicity makes it, Makes a better understanding because, like, when I first found out about uh, Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young, I was like, reading like the guidelines for both a sixty-day drying period and everything like that. Like, I was like, wow, like this is prestigious. Like, that's like that is a goal now. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, whether it's this year, five years from now, like a goal would be, hey, I want to get Boone and Crockett without a doubt, or Pope and Young without a doubt. Like, it, it sets goals for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's let's go down into hunter recruitment and retention and i i want to really keep it geared towards hunting ethics so we talked about earlier about the easy button and how nowadays you it's more it's it's easier it's definitely easier to be more successful earlier without the necessary skills of like woodsmanship how to read deer sign animal sign like all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. uh do you think that that is doing a disservice to the hunting community? Explain. What do you mean by So, for example, if, if we want to bring new hunters into the sport of hunting, the community of hunting, having equipment or regulations or whatever that makes things way easier, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think if you're looking in the aspect of making it appealing for people to come and start hunting. Unfortunately, yeah, the easier, the better. Mm -hmm. Because if you bring somebody that's in, that's never hunted before, majority, if they are not successful, even at just seeing deer or seeing game, they're probably going to give up. 
you know, if they can be successful and they could have that rush and have that drive, they're going to continue on and hopefully evolve into what most people would consider, like most people that consider themselves hunters are today, you know, it, but the recruitment aspect of it, it's hard to get people in the woods and say, Hey man, go sit in the woods, go harvest an animal. And if they don't harvest, they probably quit. Yeah. You know, it's, it is, un- it's very unfortunate. Like, especially if there isn't people, if that new hunter isn't it, like hunting, isn't part of their past, their grandfather hunted or their father hunted. Like if it's not something that they grew up understanding or knowing to bring up, fresh person into the woods and into hunting in general and keep them there with all these stipulations and guidelines, unfortunately, yeah, you will lose, you will lose hunters. You will, it will drop. So do you think that there's potentially a happy medium there? I think there's a lot of resources that are available as far as like, like hunting courses, like Pennsylvania game commission puts out all the, like those webinars and stuff like that. I think that's the happy medium. You know, as far as putting the information out there and if people really have a desire to do it or like those pop up like uh, meet and greet kind of things like the saddle hunter forums do it all the time where it's like, hey, you know, come out, like meet everybody, learn about saddle hunting, whether it's SRT, this or that. Like, I think things like that are going to allow hunting to continue to grow if it becomes and stays a community. That's the biggest thing, like. Hunting should be a community, not just a sole thing somebody does. Like, you know, I'm, I think about it. Like some of the best times most of us have ever had is probably sitting at a campfire or sitting around somewhere telling, telling Hunting stories, how you got busted by a, by a stupid yearling doe, or you know what I mean? Or how a spike blew your hunt up or something like that. You know, like those stories, like it should all be focused around that community. Like that's what hunting is really about. It's about those stories, it's about the time you spend in the woods with friends or scouting with friends. Like that's what hunting really should be about. Not just the harvest. There's so much more to it. And I think that community can bring more hunters in. All right. So I got, I got multiple questions here. First question is, do you think that, uh, hunting is steering away from a community aspect? And then my second part to that is, if it is, do you think it's getting down, niched down into specific, like, I'm a saddle hunter, I'm a bow hunter, I'm a rifle hunter, I'm a trad hunter, blah, 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 oh, blah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Oh, yeah, it's it, it starting, like, hunting is starting to click up, like, yeah. without a doubt. Like, I, I mean, I have guys that are like, oh, I'm not going to take you to my spot. All right, dude, like, really? It's not what it's all, like, I'm going to come steal your hunting spot. Like, I can <laughs> really care less, dude. Like, right, right. Yeah, it gets like that. There, there's a There's a sense of, like, it's secretive, like, but there's still that community aspect, you know, sitting at the truck, like every time I go out to a, a new, a new spot or anytime I'm in the parking lot of public, I'm a very friendly person. I guess I talk to whoever's around me, you know, like there still is that community aspect of it. You know, for me, I'm, I'll be a little bit realistic. It's like, Hey, where are you going? Are you going up there? Are you going down there? So I know where you're at. And I honestly, I could use your access to push things my way more or less. Like, mm-hmm. but there's still that conversation. There's still like, there, there's still that community aspect of it, but there are guys that are like, look at hunting just as a sole event like nope this is me this is what i do i go here i'm not showing you i'm not telling you i'm not giving you my secrets like there's selfish there's a little bit of selfish aspect in it and i think that that can definitely kill it for a new hunter yeah so i think there i think it's like almost a two-part thing because at least for me and my personality uh i look at hunting in a way that it's very like primal it's like me versus the animal yeah and and trying to figure that out 
and when people get involved in that, as far as like having a hunting buddy go with or hunting around like a, a large population of pressure, stuff like that, I kind of try to steer away from that when I want that style of hunting. But I'm also completely fine and cool with hunting with whoever. All they got to do is just ask. So I don't think it's like, so I'll say for me, it's not that I go hunting with people. But I share information like mm. with, with my hunt, like my hunting buddies, like they're not just my hunting buddies. They're guys that I'm friends with that, you know, all year round we shoot archery together, so on and so forth. Like we'll share information like, you know, hey, I'm scouting this area. I'm scouting this area. Like we'll go scout it together because I may see something you don't. Right. You know, like there's there's that camaraderie that's tied into it. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty, like I do like to hunt alone because I don't want him blown up my hunt. Right, you know I mean? right, like, right, right. There is a little bit of selfishness in it for sure, but there's still that camaraderie. There's still that community. And you really can't expect a first time hunter to go into the woods by himself, not knowing any woodsmanship and be successful. And if he's not successful or she's not successful, they may never hunt again. If there is that community where it's like, hey, you know, you want to learn how to hunt? Let's go. I'll teach you. Like, and take the selfishness away. Like, oh, well, I may not harvest an animal, but this first time hunter may. Like, and now he's going to move on and he may have that fire lit under him to continue to go on or she may have it. And, you know, that's how it's going to continue to grow. And I think as hunters, we'd have to take the selfishness out of it. And like, I don't care if I eat tag soup. If I take, I take a, a kid from my youth group every year, we go out. Uh, I take my gun for a walk more or less is what I say. And I just walk through the woods with him. I, I, I'll set him up, you know, and if he harvest, like he enjoys it, you know, I don't care if I shoot anything. I, if I eat tag soup, that's great. But I'm bringing him in the woods. He's getting time to experience it. He's getting time to learn. And, you know, hopefully when he can go out on his own, he goes out on his own and he enjoys it. He passes it on. He pays it forward. He does it again. Like, it has to remain that community. We have to put our selfishness to the side sometimes. If we really want to see hunter, if we really want to see hunting grow and the population of hunters stay, because let's be realistic, you got guys that are most likely dying off. And if, not everybody doesn't live forever. Eventually I'm going to die. I would hope that at least I've introduced five, six, seven more hunters, you know, cause if not, then eventually you have nobody in the woods and then game commission dies. Like we're here for conservation in the end. Exactly. You know, we're here to control the population of wildlife. Yep. You know, it's not, that's what it's really about. If you truly are a hunter, that's what you, I feel if you really are a hunter, you believe in, in conservation, you believe in controlling the population. That's what we're here for. We're not here to be selfish. And just worry about ourselves like we should be spreading the community and allowing people to get in the woods and they could bring more people in the woods and they can continue to grow because in the end if everybody is selfish and they don't introduce people to hunting hunting's gonna die conservation's gonna die unfortunately no i 100 percent agree and i mean it, that's not a matter of opinion that's 100 percent fact yeah like that's facts like yeah you know and my son i i hope he has a desire to, to want to hunt and everything but he may not but the kid that i've been taking for the past two years he may continue on that way, you know, like just because you hunt doesn't mean your kids are going to hunt. Right. You know, so there has to be a way to continue on. I find like the, the aspect because of what you were saying earlier, where things are so much easier. If you take a hunter, a new hunter, and you put them out in like some of the game lands back like there, where we were talking about before, like they're going to struggle. Yeah. They're going to struggle hard, but there's definitely locations where they can go and they can be more successful, but how do they know how to find that stuff? That, like, to me, that's what blows my mind is like, if you don't have a mentor, how do you get into it? 
And that's just it. Essentially, you, the Mentored Youth Program is awesome. You know, like there's the Game Commission has things in place for like Mentored Youth Programs and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I mean, you have to want to develop those woodsman characteristics. Like you, you want to become a woodsman to become a good hunter. But you have to be introduced into it first. If you're not right. introduced into it, I mean, how many people wake up and they're like, oh, wait, it's the first weekend of October. Hunting season starts. I'm going to go sit in the woods. Like they have to be introduced into it. There has right. to be something that or somebody that was like, hey, let's go hunting. You know, like let's do this. And for them to actually learn and want to have that desire to want to continue on and learn about it. You know, it, there has to be that introduction to it. You know, and it's not for everybody. Like it's right. really not. Some people don't have the stomach for it. I, and, and I hate, I say stomach for it. Like literally, like if you ever have to field dress an animal, like it's not a pretty sight. You know, some people just physically can't do that, but mm -hmm. you got to try. So here's an interesting uh, experience I had. One of my buddy's friends got into hunting based on Meat Eater podcast and the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. And I think they're probably, those two are the number one recruiters of new hunters in America. Yeah. So with that being said, that person then went to the woods for the first day of archery season, not knowing what a deer track was. Or not knowing the direction of the actual track. Like, oh yeah. I mean, so uh, Steve Rennell, meat eater, like without a doubt. I mean, he, and what I love about his, what I love about meat eaters, he doesn't only show success. Mm -hmm. He shows failures as well. The re like the realistic aspect of hunting. And the fact that people watch that and have the desire knowing that they're not going to even see a game, you know, because there's sometimes they don't even see anything. Sets realistic expectations and that's great for it. But they're in the woods at that point. Like they may not know what they're looking for, but they're in the woods at that point. And nowadays, like we said, with technology, you could easily learn. I mean, you could literally just start Googling and Googling and YouTube video. You can go down that rabbit hole forever. You'll, you'll never get to the end of information on on game animals like you want and then that that fire's lit that desire's started at that point you know the information's there and now you'll see people just start putting it in the practice but they were introduced to it you know and sometimes i think that's should be our responsibility like i mean this is probably crazy like you should have to recruit one 100 a year or something like like they're if you want to see a future of game of, of like the game commission or hunting you should be you should be forced to do a junior mentor program. It, it's hilarious you you bring that up because I in the last probably two weeks I had that exact same discussion with multiple people. One, the one person said that every hunter should be responsible for taking at least one predator uh, a season. I one agree. predator, especially yeah. with with PA's coyote uh, population right now. Oh yeah, without a doubt. And then the other uh, requirement was they need to bring in one hunter a year, or at least take one person hunting. That's not a hunter. Take one person, one person hunting. Hunt. I even throw a curveball and PA should be an earn a buck state. That would be wild. Shoot oh, it though, you want to kill a buck, you have to shoot it though. Like they don't just give you a buck tag. You have to kill it. Well, no, you want an extra buck tag, kill a doe. Cause there's so many people out there that only want to shoot bucks and the does, but killing a predator and bringing somebody in there, that'd be phenomenal. But like, it comes back to how many people is that going to deter from the sport? Oh, a lot. I mean, personally, you know, any opportunity I have to kill a coyote, I'm killing a coyote. Right. I mean, same. Just plain and simple. Um, I think bringing people in the woods, bringing a new hunter in the woods, yeah, it should be done. 
I mean, it definitely, it definitely should be. If you care about the sport and you care about the future of it, then yeah, you should. So let me ask you this. I know that we, we do this a lot and I don't know if you've been on any of them, but we host the webinars almost, we usually try to do at least two a month where there's an educational component focused around hunting. Yeah. As far as what you would recommend, what would it be for a new hunter to gain information outside of YouTube? What are you looking for in the woods? That's the biggest thing. Like you said, even like someone goes in the woods, doesn't even know what a deer track looks like, you know, or this might sound crazy, but can you really differentiate a yearling to a mature doe? You know, like everyone knows a buck and a doe because of the antlers, you know, but can you actually tell the difference between a yearling or a mature doe or a fairly mature doe? What their tracks look like, like what the difference between doe poop and buck poop, like little things like that, like just introductory stuff like that information can go a long way, you know, because if you're now walking into a, a, a piece of land and you start seeing tracks, you now know, okay, well, here's a deer track. It was going this way. You know, instead of looking at it like, oh, you're going this way. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just basic information. And that's stuff that a lot of seasoned hunters take for granted. Absolutely. You know, but somebody who's never been hunting before, like that's information that's huge to them. And it's something so minute. Just knowing what, what dope poop looks like or which way the hoof is actually going. Like that information could really help somebody have a better experience in the woods, especially a new hunter. So here's another one too. We had um, a server-side member that completely got into hunting on his own and basically was like, yeah, I want to start hunting. I want to provide meat for my family. Like that whole, that was the whole process behind it of why he wanted to get into hunting. And he told me that when he went out his first season, he saw like these dug up pieces of earth and didn't know what they were until like a couple years later and found out there were scrapes. They found a scrape. Like, yeah, what a rub looks like, what a scrape looks like. I mean, and like you said, like that. a seasoned hunter takes that for granted yep. every single day. Like that, that right there basically painted the picture when I first started here at Serverside and trying to bring more education to hunters, having to potentially dial it back more because you have an audience that's maybe at like a very, very introductory level. And then you have an audience also that's maybe a little bit farther down the road and kind of trying to meet that happy yeah. medium. Yeah, more information is better. I mean, even the simplest. Because, yeah, I, I honestly, I never even thought about that. Like how, what a scrape looks like and what a rub looks like. Like, yeah. You know, and then because you look at different, like, turkey scratches. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, yep. just being able to know a little bit of information or, like, just, just tracks. Like, I was never a Boy Scout. I know in Boy Scouts, they teach a lot of that stuff, like, you know, what different tracks are and like what different scat and stuff is like Boy Scouts do that, mm -hmm. you know, but for somebody who's never had no woods experience at all, like the smallest amount of information is so beneficial. Yeah. It's amazing. I would never even think about what a scrape looks like. My, my, my stepfather told me the other day that, um, he was talking to one of his hunting buddies at work and he didn't know that acorn trees or acorns came from oak trees. Really? See, even that, even being able to differentiate the type of red oaks, white oaks, yep. pin oaks, like, you know, what is food, what's not, or even like everyone thinks 
deer only eat acorns or corn or soybeans. No, they, they browse. They eat, literally, they'll eat sticks if they have to. You know, late season when there's no food on the ground, they'll literally eat sticks, mm. leaves. Like, they browse. That's what they are. Like, but knowing what... What browse is. Yeah, what browse is. Or Most to, people probably haven't even heard that word. Or how to spot it. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, if you come across, like, a, a tiny little sapling and you can, like, you could see it's been nipped, like, it's missing. It was browsed on. Like, it's, it's simple enough to see. Like, but somebody has no idea. Like I said, never even heard the word browse. Like, little and basic information like that can go a huge way in hunter recruitment and retention, without a doubt. Because you, you need to know something. Because if not, to be realistic, it's probably dangerous for you to be in the woods. 100% agreed. Probably dangerous for you to be in the woods. Especially even hunter safety, you know, like I know they make you take the course and everything like that, but I'm not a person that can read something to retain information. Like I have to physically do it with my hands or like, or experience it to actually retain it. Same way. Like that's huge. Like that's safety. Like even now, like I do not go anywhere. Like when I go hunting, I send a pin to my, like I send a pin to somebody so they know where I'm at where I let somebody know where I'm going. Like for the simple, where I have my location service turned on on my phone. Like, and I consider myself, I'm not like an, I'm not an expert hunter that I know everything, but I consider myself a good hunter. Like, and it's safety. It's a safety aspect of it. Like it really is. It could be dangerous for somebody to have no information mm. at all. Even though what poison ivy looks like. Yeah. You know, like it could be dangerous. I know. I a hundred percent agree. And that's, again, that's stuff that I honestly probably really take for granted. I mean, I've been going in the woods since I've been probably three years old and was lucky enough to learn a lot at a very early age. And then due to my choice of a career was able to learn even more. Uh, you do take that for granted yeah, a lot, you do, a lot of doubt, you know, and like I said, I'm originally from New York city, man. There's no grass in New York city, right? <laughs> There's no trees. Like, Right. The crazy thing is, is there's deer in New York City that run around and I mean, they're becoming a problem up there. Mm -hmm. they, I mean, in like Long Island, Staten Island, like deer are becoming a problem up there because there's no hunters. Yeah. You know, so maybe I should sure get a tag for up there. But needless to say, yeah, that it's, it's information you take for granted because you grew up around it. Right. You know? But that, that new hunter has no idea. You know, it's uh, like anything. You need, you need information to be successful at it or to be safe at it, really, because hunting, there's a huge safety aspect to it. Without a doubt. You hear all the horror stories of guys walking through the woods with broadheads and they trip and fall, don't even realize it. And the next thing you know, they're bleeding out. You know, there's a lot of, the, you're dealing with dangerous equipment, da razor sharp broadheads, a gun, like there needs to be safety aspect of it. And if you have, don't have any information and you're going out there hundred percent blind. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be in the woods with them. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Um, well, we're working on an hour here. We actually just, clipped over an hour is there anything else that you kind of want to touch on before we hop off there yeah there is one thing um we were trying to focus on ethics and my add rabbit trail mind kind of goes all over the place um i think ethics are something that get forgotten about because everyone is too worried about harvesting an animal or harvesting that game i don't ever want to see an animal being tortured if i if I'm going to let an arrow fly. I want to know the best of my ability that I did everything I could to make sure that that animal wasn't going to suffer. Or if I made a bad shot, I'm diligently looking for that animal that it's not going to waste. Like 
I truly feel that hunting is a, a privilege and a blessing for us to be able to do, for me to be able to do. I don't want to take advantage of it. I don't want to make bad shots and say, you know, oh, well, like, I'm not even going to waste my time to look for it. It was a bad shot. Like, yeah, like that, that hurts. I know I have a, a buddy of mine that shot a buck last year and knew he made a bad shot and didn't even bother looking for the deer. And I'm like, dude, like, wow. you should punch your tag. Like you, you literally should, your buck tag should be shot right now. You should not ever shoot another buck right now. Like that's ethics right there. Like you, yeah. If you're going to let an arrow fly, if you're going to pull the trigger, you make sure you do everything you can to recover that animal. Plain and simple. I would be, we talked about this the other week. I would be really curious to see what, um, I don't know. I don't know the correct terminology. How many dead deer you would find in the woods if Pennsylvania or let's just say the United States in general, if you draw blood, your tag is punched yeah. like Alaska is like we we're talking about that. Yeah, we were talking about that a couple weeks. You know, crazy thing is, is go to some public land that's got, you know, creeks or water stream running through it. At the end of the year, just start walking down the water lines and look at all the deadheads you find. Because mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that they died because people didn't bother looking for them, you know, but maybe they didn't diligently look. You know, and I personally think Pennsylvania should adopt that if a animal runs on private property, you put your weapon down and you have permission to cross to find that to find that animal. You can't bring your weapon onto the private property, but you don't need permission to track. I really think Pennsylvania should adopt that. Um, but like you said, yeah, you draw blood, you punch your tag. I think I, I would be all for that. I really would be. I think, you know, it's it's a privilege to be able to take that animal's life. You need to do everything in your power to try to recover. And that's, that's a tricky thing too, with, with the, the, the private land aspect in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, animals are owned by everybody, Yeah, the entire citizens, right? So at what point, cause I would love to see that too. Cause I actually had a really bad interaction with a landowner where I hit a doe with, it would have been my first kill with the trad bow. She went on to private land. It was during rifle season. And he didn't let me on his land to finish tracking that doe because he was going hunting the next morning. Yeah. Um, and didn't want me bumping the deer out. Like I would love to see that where you, yep, you have permission, the no want loss or whatever law that is. Yeah, but realistically, do you say the next day that that landowner was walking through his property and found that deer? He took it. You think he called the game commission and got a salvage tag for it? Yeah, right. That's unethical, right? Like personally, I find that unethical. Like you know, agreed. Yeah. So there's, you could argue both sides of it as a landowner and as a hunter, but right. in the end of it, you're doing what's right for that animal. Right. You know, like, it, yeah. And there are a lot of guys that are like that. No, you're not allowed on my property. And they'll next thing you know, an hour later, they're dragging that deer into their house and they're butchering it without calling the game. Like that's unethical. If you ask me. I agree. I a hundred percent agree with that. A lot of, a lot of things to think about. I think this is going to be a really good podcast and we're definitely gonna have to do a part two once uh, some feedback starts rolling in. Yeah. And maybe I could stay focused. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. I liked it. I really enjoyed it. All right, Vito, I want to thank you for hopping on, stopping out of HQ to do this podcast. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Whitetail Theories podcast.